we're back on the TV podcast talking about Game of Thrones. High Sparrow is the name of this episode. I'm Jason Snell, and with me to talk about Game of Thrones, the other two voices you might expect to hear on this podcast. Monty Ashley is out there. Hi, Monty. Hi, Sparrow. I mean, Jason. <laughs> and, and Brian Hamilton is out there. Brian, hello. Hello, Jason. Hello, Monty. Hello, Brian. Long time no talk. Okay, we're all back together. We got an episode. I really enjoyed this episode, but I guess I just skipped to the end. Spoilers. <laughs> I enjoyed this episode. I liked good it a lot. Good night, everybody. And mm, that's a good episode. And scene. Uh, I really enjoyed the way that the uh, individual scenes were linked together in clever ways that made me at some points chuckle or even laugh out loud at how clever they were. But I suppose we should go through... Uh, scene or not scene by scene, but location by location, plot by plot, and uh, break so I it. Have my notes organized? Good. Break it down that way. Let's talk about Arya, who is uh, hanging around in the House of Black and White, which you guys so uh, deftly co- covered that episode that had very little to do with the actual House of Black and White last week. <laughs> we got to be inside the House of Black and White this week, and there's a lot of sweeping going on because apparently that floor gets really dirty. It's and very, unlike its actual name, it's uh, it's actually very gray, it turns out. Dark gray, I thought. It was very dark. I watched the standard definition, not the high definition feed. And I could not tell who Arya was for the first half of the first scene. <laughs> so she's learning already how to be a faceless man, I guess. Mm, there you go. Well, um, I can tell you the high definition feed doesn't really help no. uh, the color definition at all. No, it's 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 gray and dark, and uh, there are people dying, and there are pools of water, and there are cups, and the many-faced god they they serve, they say, which I I thought was interesting. If you're if you're scoring at home about the various, we have some theology in this episode, so this is an interesting bit of theology with the the many-faced god, and he says there's only there's only the one god, and and uh, you und- you you know who it is, and you and all, all men share his gift or something like that. that yeah, was... well, that's a callback to possibly my favorite scene in the series, which is when Sirio Forel, her uh, dance teacher, told Arya, there is only one god, and his name is Death. You... And there's only one thing we say to Death. Not today. Ooh. It's a great scene. Yeah, the way that um, he talks a lot about this theology, this is something that I've never really understood. They never really go very in-depth to the religions in the show. We have uh, the fire faith, the uh, the red, god of light. The red, that, the red uh, priests, right? Mm-hmm. And priests. And, and then we have the seven, which they don't really talk about that much. I feel like we get a lot of that information in this episode, too. And now we have this whole other sect of people that are really devout to this one thing that I don't think is anything that we've heard of before. Yeah, there's a lot of religion in this episode. There's this guy talking about how there's only one multi-faced god. Later on, we're going to hear a red priestess who's going to segue into the dragon queen. Yeah, and we get uh, the High Septon and the uh, High Sparrow who have their little – different views of uh, of their religion which is the, the the you know what they say is the true religion um which is the the many the many different gods and then john talks about swearing his oath to the old gods i think for the night's watch so that's that's in here too there's a lot a lot of that a lot of swearing going on <laughs> a little bit of a callback to the very first yeah. season when uh, john was the only one that swore in the light of the old gods right. yeah yeah it is I, hbo they allow swearing <laughs> I think there's even a brief mention of the gods uh, when we see the end of the 
cleanest marriage on the series, uh, Marjorie and Tommen. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> That's true. Um, but so, so, uh, in with Arya's story, there's the, the we also get the um, the the blind girl. Uh, so I mean, her first scene where she's sweeping is not she's just complaining about sweeping. But then uh, the blind girl, uh, I think she's blind. She acts blind. I don't know. And she says, "Who are you?" And she and and, and uh, Jake when Hagar comes in and says, "You you say you're nobody, but you have Arya's sword and her things and and all of that." And and uh, so to to prove that she's going to move on, she takes all her possessions and throws most of them. In the water. <laughs> I have Which, in my notes in uh, all caps, don't throw away needle. No. Well, <laughs> she threw away that coin one, into the water once before. Yeah. And they, they just brought it back. They just her, bring it so. back. Well, she's already cashed it. She's there at the house in black and white. It's yeah. not necessary at this point. That's well, good yeah, I'm just saying they clearly have some way of getting stuff back from underwater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it could be magic, could be scuba gear. It's something like that. Could be like a big helmet in a tube. I thought it was cool when she threw her stuff away. You know, it's symbolic of mm-hmm. leaving your old self behind. But then later on, when we saw Jonathan Price of the High Sparrow say he didn't have shoes because he gave them to somebody who needed them, I realized Arya's being a jerk, just throwing money into the water like that. <laughs> yeah, maybe she's thinking that she can swim down there and pick it up later. If, although, yeah, but you're right; she could donate that to, to poor people, the indigent, dying people in the House of Black and White, or maybe just the people out on the streets. She could have let those thieves have it instead of threatening to kill them last episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, isn't that what got her in the House of Black and White anyway? Because Jack and as the uh, as uh, someone with another face showed up and said, yo, let's uh, bring you in. And, you know, going back to uh, possessions and identity for someone who has assumed many different identities and many different names. Jack seems to have a really good understanding of, you know, who Arya is based on, you know, everything that she has. You have Arya's clothes, you have Arya's sword. And you say you're not Arya? Hmm. Yeah, I like that. I like. I like. This is this is right. She's she's waiting. I mean, this is classic. This is almost Karate Kid level stuff. This is this is this is. You think you're waiting for the lesson and getting impatient? Ah, but that is your first lesson. Yeah, I wrote down that it is the incredibly standard uh, <laughs> apprentice complaints. Why do I got to sweep all the time? Yeah, you got to which wax happens. on, wax off. <laughs> What am I well, saying? <laughs> it goes farther back than that. Like, it's I, in a bunch yeah. of old sure. Buddhist stories of the apprentice saying, I don't want to keep doing this stuff. And then the master hits him over the head with a stick. Sure. I know. It's a classic. <laughs> it's a classic. I just, you know, I, I enjoy um, picturing Pat Morita as Jack Hagar because why not? Um, sure. But, but I, do, I do like the scene where, the, um, where they undress and wash the dead body. Uh, that, that felt really uh, weird and cool like – um, now we're letting you in on some of the strange things we do in this dark gray <laughs> building that we're living in with all these dying people. My favorite thing about this is that we don't really know much about this, but neither does Arya. I really like being on that same plane as these characters, uh, watching them figure out things as we figure out them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything more about Arya? Um, we saw her in a dress. I feel like we haven't done that very mm. often at all. She can finally be herself or something. I don't even know. Or something that, you know, the House of Black and White people want her to be. I feel like that was like the mandated House of Black and White uniform because everyone else is wearing something very similar. Yeah, that that may be true. That may be true. If the, the, this is one of those book things that, because people are like, oh, do I, I haven't read the books, but just, uh, and, and you guys haven't read the books, right? Mm -mm. That's right. We are past the part of the books I've read. Yeah. So what I would say is, 
Um, I think I think this I think there's more attending to dying people in um, in the books than is in this episode, but it gets across what's happening here. These are there are sort of really sad people <laughs> in the in the in the the main room, and then there's the dead body, and they're carting people out dead or or almost dead or whatever. And um and I I just I I rem- it reminded me of those themes in the books, but um. But I, I, you know, they didn't need to dwell on it. They, there was enough of a sense of of how it's dark and creepy, and people are dying, and they're they're uh, yeah, and, and yet they're also ministering to them and taking care of them, and even after they die, they're washing their bodies and undressing them and things like that. This will be in contrast to how dead bodies are treated in a later scene. Um, <laughs> maybe we should move on to King's Landing, where, as as you said, it's uh, the exciting, happy, uh, not as destructive or disastrous as other weddings could be. Tom and Marjorie wedding. Yay! Yay! Those crazy kids. They finally Good did it. Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> and then straight to the post-sex scene. Yep. Oh, God. That was Which, a scene that... Mm. I I I was laughing. I just was. I loved. I mean, and I know Monty. I know how much you love Natalie Dormer. I mean, it, it, the glee in that scene. Like it, it all happened so fast. He says, yes. "Yes, it did." She says, "She is playing him so hard." It's oh my crazy. god! When he said, "Does Queen Marjorie sound strange to you?" <laughs> she has been saying Queen Marjorie yeah. in her head her entire life. Yeah, I kid. shout. I actually <laughs> shouted out at that moment when after he said that, I said, "Nope." Of course, she says, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm very, oh, <laughs> how weird it is. <sighs> My goodness. I, I love that. And the, and yeah, she's playing him. We've said on the previous podcasts, nobody plays the Game of Thrones harder than Marjorie Tyrell. But no. um, she's got, it's so wonderful to have your mom watching over you. <laughs> Don't, you know, you get, you get to be, you know, she's going to take care of you. You're her little boy. I'm not a little boy she doesn't have to be here anymore i'm like oh yes now, yes i have a question about him not being a little boy do you remember the episode blackwater where she and or cersei and tommen were on the iron throne and she was just about to poison him but yeah. then just in time tywin roars in and he saved the day i remember how that old, yeah how old did tommen look in that scene and how long ago was it <laughs> well obviously he's hit puberty since then well, good. What was that? Well, that could have been like two or three years ago, right? Couldn't it have? Been? Yeah, we talked about how time doesn't really flow normally yeah. for us watching, yeah. but it was two seasons ago, so let's call it two years. Two years ago? Yeah, I mean, I, I assume now what what is what is Tom in? 15? Could we say? I mean, in the books, in the books, he's a kid. In books, he's a little kid, and it's weird, yeah, they, really weird, and they can't do that on TV. Mm-mm. So instead, he's just, you know, barely legal, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> He's king. He's fully legal. He is. That is. He's the law. In fact, he is the uh, highest in the land mm-hmm. as of right now. Anyway, but yeah. you know who's actually controlling things? Who's pulling the strings? It's not him. No, it's not him. But it may not be his mother, who he then goes and sees and says, "Don't you want to go back to Casterly Rock?" <laughs> um, and she's like, "Why are we talking about that now?" And Cersei seems so. She is so. And you guys were saying. Um, I, I know Monty, Monty feels like Cersei is, um, is maybe the most qualified in some ways to rule because she's kind of got, at least she's got a plan and she's got it together. And this, she seems so out of place. This is like that moment of like, oh, geez, as, uh, Littlefinger says later, her power and influence is waning by the day. And you can really feel it here that when she's talking to Toman, she's like, it's like day one 
and Marjorie's already <laughs> working on getting her out. When I watched that scene, I was thinking about how, uh, you know, he's kind of sending her away in a way that's, you know, not very manipulative. You can tell he feels genuine about it. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that is Marjorie playing through him. I have my notes somewhere um, after he says, oh, I'm a man now. Maybe he'll have some agency. But no, that whole scene was Marjorie talking through him. Yeah. Um, and after that, Cersei goes and talks to Marjorie, and there's where I feel Marjorie overplays her hand a bit. She's doing fine until she starts digging the knife in and using phrases like Dowager Queen and <laughs> yeah. oh. uh, Queen Grandmother. Mm-hmm. When Cersei leaves, her expression suggests to me that she has a new goal. Yeah, yeah. Also, you, you, one, uh, the line that I really I appreciated and wrote down is, I wish we had some wine for you. It's a bit early in the day for us. <laughs> Every line in that dialogue oh my God. might as well be an F you. Yeah, that was beautiful. That was just, oh my God. Dowager queen or queen mother? Um, yeah, you're right. But but this is the question is, is that does that just make uh, Cersei that much more committed? Or is that just rubbing it in because she knows that she's in, you know, she's between a rock and a hard place now? I don't know. I don't know. It, 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 the giggling is the part that really caught me. Is that is that um, it actually seems not not entirely. Marjorie obviously feels really confident now because it doesn't seem like her to be so um, loose with the fact that she's just talking about her wedding night with her little tittering group of girls, and they're all laughing. And then when Cersei leaves, they all just keep laughing, basically at her within her her uh, earshot, and that seems. I don't know. It seems not careful. And that doesn't seem like Marjorie, but maybe that's the suggestion here is that she is maybe overconfident now in her position. She might feel that she is one. Yeah. I'm curious to see if there's more scenes set in that little like inner sanctum for Marjorie. I hope those people become characters and that becomes some sort of um, little haven for her so we can have some scenes of her being more natural. Because what I'm starting to wonder is, is she playing them as well? Is that just another sect of her brain, like another outlet for her to talk about what she wants? Or is she playing them too? That's That was what's right. on my mind. Right. Yeah. I would love that just because it would be more scenes with Natalie Dormer. Mm-hmm. And it getting to do something different because right now she only has Tommen and Cersei to work off of. Right. And and, and she mentions that her grandmother went back to Highgarden, which I assume is something like we either uh, couldn't get Diana Rigg back for the, these episodes no. <laughs> or we didn't have anything for her to do. But I do feel her absence because that was when Marjorie could like turn to somebody and say, okay, oh, here's my plan. Right. That was, yeah. <laughs> and that's not, no, I really miss her. Yeah. Um, later in King's Landing, uh, the High Septon is doing his, uh, worship of a sort where he chooses which, <laughs> which, uh, of the gods he wants to commune with. And he chooses the maiden and he says, and the stranger to which the, uh, the people at, at Littlefinger's uh, brothel say, you know, that, that costs extra. And he says, yes, I know. <laughs> which I, that was the first time in the past few episodes where I didn't know where that was set. Yeah. Like, I can usually tell like, okay, this is the wall. This is uh, Marine. This is X, Y, Z. But no, I couldn't figure out if this was Marine marine or king's landing or who it was yeah yeah and, and then the sparrows come in and you're like okay and it's the high oh that's the high septon i because i forgot i can't recognize the high septon no I'm sorry. Nope. 
Uh, but they, they, uh, they, the sparrows in their burlap sacks grab him and run him naked through the streets. Oh. Uh, <laughs> they actively avoid male genitalia on the show, which uh, is in contrast to the uh, opposite sex. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I believe the ladies in that scene, we mostly just saw their butts. Mm. That's true. In fact, there was, there was butt... Uh, there was, I believe, the first outfit I've ever seen on television, or perhaps anywhere, where um, where uh, butt cleavage was the purpose of the cut of the outfit. <laughs> it's like, all right, that's uh, there's some interesting interesting shots in that. Well, well, no, wait, the butt cleavage is with Tyrion later, isn't it? Tyr- yeah. Tyrion really likes the girl with the butt cleavage, but this mm-hmm. is a different. Yeah, okay, so there's we got whores around in this uh, in this show that happens. Boy, where the themes are really lining up here. We've got the prostitutes, we've got the religion. Um, uh, so anyway, the the uh, the the high uh, Septon is outraged. I'm I'm outraged that this is going on, and demands <laughs> that uh, they that they punish the high sparrow. He has the sense not to tell Cersei that it was Lancel leading the charge. Mm-hmm. It was. I didn't notice that. He doesn't look anything like Lancel anymore. No, mm-hmm. that makes sense. And I mean, why 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 have Lancel come back if you're not going to use him mm-hmm. as one of the how many how many sparrows do you do you need? Um, but but so Cersei Cersei um, goes to uh, find the high sparrow and goes up in, up a staircase and there's lots of people wearing burlap sacks and it's really smelly and there's sound effects of flies so you know that it's smelly. <laughs> and and uh and uh who is it but uh but uh, proving that game of thrones is doing nothing but but uh making me realize that english actors i feel are much younger than they actually are are uh actually not that young john because julian glover every time i see him i think come on julian glover and then jonathan price the same way it's like wow that old man is jonathan price but there mm-hmm. he is he's the high sparrow Hi, Sparrow. Hi. <laughs> well, Brazil was a long time ago. I know, I know, I know. But he, he. Um, so, w- w- what do you think about Jonathan Price? I think he's got a really nice. Uh, he's got a really nice little conversation that he has with Cersei, where he sort of talks about his. Uh, you know, he's he's kind of you know religious and somewhat mysterious and somewhat idealistic, and you know, I just kept on thinking, oh, it's Jonathan Price. What do you Every guys? time I think of the Sparrows and when they first came up uh, in the first episode of the season, it was like, okay, you're there. I hope you get to do something more rather than, oh, there's just another sect you need to keep track of. I'm glad we were here hanging out with Jonathan Price, but then, like, the scene was very like, idealistic in a way. Uh, having Cersei be there and kind of spout some stuff that she just needs to cover her own butt and uh, make sure everything goes quiet. Uh, I was... I was thinking about this. How would this whole scandal thing be handled if it was in our society? Because in Westeros, there's no Twitter. There's no way to like spread all this stuff around and try to get everything to, uh, you know, all that information out there. But in this society, um, it would be very, very different. Well, in Westeros, uh, there, there is, uh, they do literally send birds who could be said to tweet. <laughs> but it is of much more limited use, I would oh, than than all of that. Well, yeah, I mean, he would be done for, right? But, and he may be, the High Septon may be done for anyway, but, um, 
I don't know this 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 strike strikes me as interesting in the in, in that you've got the faith of the seven, which is the dominant faith in Westeros, although not entirely adhered to in the north. And now we've got the the red the red god uh, people, the red priests are are kind of making their move. But the the sparrow thing is fascinating because that's like I don't want know if I want to say like a fundamentalist version of the same faith or a reform of the faith to take it back to kind of its origins. But it's an mm-hmm. interesting little extra bit of politics. It's like a game of thrones. Thrones, huh? Within <laughs> the the religion, where you've got the completely corrupt pope, basically, and then I mean, it's almost like a papal schism. I think is what what the the parallel is that George R. R. Martin probably was trying to do here, where you've got this completely corrupt central authority with the the high septon in the in the um, brothel, and then you've got this uh, high sparrow who even like scoffs at the title and says, "No, no, no, we're just here to take it back to." To the way it was before, and uh, and not have not have us be a tool in your in your political games, but have it really be religion. I think that's really interesting. Every time I, I watch something in Game of Thrones, and there's something like that, uh, I can't help but think of analogs to the real world, which is you know when you're doing a fantasy like this, you're trying to escape from the real world, but you can't avoid making these parallels. So yeah, this is a sort of you know fundamentalist group uh, of the seven gods that are you know trying to bring things back to the way they were. And the way that, you know, I fully expected uh, the High Sparrow to get, you know, get thrown into the dungeons instead of the um, instead of the priest, simply based on how, you know, this society works. You know, it's the people with the power that are able to win. Well, I like the High Sparrow so far. He seems very nice, seems very genuine, seems very humble. I assume that's all a front. Because it's Jonathan Price. <laughs> well, because it's George R.R. R. Martin. Yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> We've gotten to this point in the show without anybody who's honest and genuine well, and nice. Right. Well, I mean, I don't I don't actually doubt his, um, his belief, but yeah, I, I doubt that he's just a nice guy who's going to say, hey, we just... I mean, he brought all of his people to King's Landing for a reason, right? I mean, his, his goal is probably to do something serious like take over the church and get the high septon thrown in the in the dungeons or something, right? Well, but, he achieved that on his first day. Yeah, so. good job. He is really, <laughs> really good at his job. What's next? Will he notice how uh, wantonly and poorly everyone else in the city is behaving? Hmm. Who knows? Can't have that. Yeah, but it is interesting that that he's like, yeah, I gave my shoes and all that, and you know that there's something else going on there. But I also kind of don't doubt his true commitment to his religion. I feel like you know he he that is probably what's motivating him. But I think he's capable of more than just sort of like standing around with uh, you know stew and uh, not wearing any shoes and wearing a burlap sack. Yeah. Well, that's what motivates everyone because, you know, everyone thinks that their uh, religion is the highest order in the land and that everyone should bow down to the one true king and worship the one true God. Mm. I feel like he's a bit less of a threat just because he understands that, you know, in his mind, he's worshiping the seven true gods. But, you know, he doesn't seem to be that threatening. Then again, I'm just taking everything at face value in terms of that <laughs> scene because I can't see any way this guy is going to be, you know, rising up through any political ranks with burlap sacks and Dale red Hmm. yeah i did think it was interesting that it's still littlefinger's uh brothel i kind of assumed that he had just left after joffrey's 
assassination, but mm. he's still in the mix somehow. Yeah, he's got some interest. And in fact, Cersei then sends a raven to him, so she feels like he's still working for her. And yes. So, and so we see her send the raven off, and she's visiting with the super creepy meister who she put in charge <laughs> of stuff instead of instead of Julian Glover. And um, and uh, we he's the guy who took the head. Yes. Yeah. Last week. And now he's working on something and there's like a dead body back there and he's doing stuff with dead people and stuff. And the dead body, like, or whatever it is under that sheet twitches and he says, Oh, now, 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 friend, uh, you know, easy there or something like that. And it's like, what was that? I got chills. I, I hope we never learn anything more about that. I, I want that to be like the watermelon in Buckaroo Bonsai. Uh, my wife said, I spent the entire scene looking at that thing in the back on the table thinking, it's going to move, it's going to move. And then when it moved, she still jumped. <laughs> well, it's going to move. We talked about last week how, you know, I feel like Game of Thrones' first jump scare was when Daenerys was in the um, was in the dragon cave. And after a few seconds of silence, right. rawr, there's a dragon. I was wondering why they were lingering on that shot. Like, this show is usually really deft moving from one storyline to another at the end of a scene. Why are they focusing on the – oh, there we go. He just yeah. – uh, the dead body moves. <laughs> I also like that because it's it's one of those reminders of um, of magic – that I think this show is really great because you don't do magic for a while and then something happens and you're like, what was that? What what just happened? Something you don't expect because you sort of are like, all right, we're, we're playing by the rules here. I understand the rules. And then a dead body moves and you think, I have no idea what's happening now. That I like that. I really like, like, like uh, the assumptions I made about this world I got to remember are not entirely solid because crazy stuff with magic can happen or science or whatever he's doing some combat whatever the meisters do you know psychic or magence or something (laughs) well it's all internally consistent but it still surprises you when it happens it's like the princess bride nothing in there is like written you know for sure but when something happens it makes sense because that's the world you know it makes sense that you know a dead body would rise up in the middle of this lab even though it's you know startling it doesn't feel out of character for game of thrones to do that he's only mostly dead and that means he's partially alive (laughs) I think it's sufficiently arcane magic, which, as we all know, is indistinguishable from technology. Yeah, I mm. think that's good. That's the reverse Clark. Good job. Yes. Um, <laughs> at the uh, at at Winterfell, um, the, the, we we see that the flayed man isn't just a clever symbol on a on a flag. There are actually flayed men because when you <laughs> when when the Boltons take over a, a a new building, they like to raise a couple of flayed guys and say, "Yep, that's us. That's what we do." Well, you also know why. <laughs> we also know why Winterfell's been kept in the uh, opening titles uh, this whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're back. We're back at Winterfell, but things are not as good as they as they were. And, and we get a nice scene with uh, Roose Bolton and Ramsay, where Ramsay is talking about how he flayed these you know two people and um, and he got the money and and uh, I really like the politics there because Roose Bolton knows that Ramsay is kind of kind of wild even for a Bolton. Um, yeah. But he but he's like okay you know flaying people is great but 
<laughs> um, politics too. Uh, that you can't just go, you can't just go killing these people. The Lannisters are far away. Tywin Lannister is dead. I really like that. That he's he, he again. He's explaining kind of like we're a little overextended here. We need to make this work. And then we have one of those really nice transitions where he says, you know, marriage. Now that's how you keep people in line. And I found the perfect girl. <laughs> Cut to Sansa Stark. <laughs> that's another thing Game of Thrones has started doing uh, really recently. Yeah. Mostly these things are you know so isolated that once mm-hmm. a scene ends, we just cut somewhere else and we expect Game of Thrones to do that. Nope, we've been getting a lot of transitions yeah. between things that mean things for both segments. Yeah, yeah this whole week, every, everything, almost everything in this episode is like that. And I, I, it, it certainly gives you the feeling like uh, maybe not all the stories are pulling together, but lots of the stories are pulling together. And that's a good feeling after several yeah. years of these being completely disconnected. I do have to say, I do not admire Sansa's ability to pick fiancés. No. Mm. She thought Joffrey was a nightmare? Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, Joffrey had other people do most of his dirty work. Well, there's a chance, not not a huge chance, but there's a chance that Ramsay was serious when he promised not to hurt her. Mm. He has uh, Theon slash Reek to torture. Eventually, I suppose Sansa's going to see him, and that'll be fun. Yeah. On the flip side, I can't imagine what he would think not hurting her is. I can't. I don't want to see a sex scene between them. <laughs> so here's here's something that I thought was interesting. So we get we get some really nice creepy Littlefinger, like where you can actually like even imagine that Littlefinger is just pretending that she's Catelyn because he always loved Catelyn and he's like holding her head and it's all even shot like there's going to be a big like like a kiss that happens and it's super creepy but what he says because when does Littlefinger not do something that's creepy what he says is interesting and again he could just be lying to get her to do what he wants but he he says basically you know you can have your revenge and 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 I read that as being you know just because we're sending you off to marry the Boltons and all that doesn't mean that that's actually what my end game is. There may be you know this you're getting in on the inside and you're getting back to Winterfell. And there's that moment where the where the servant says to her the North remembers or whatever that is that similar like there is an undercurrent here that they remember the Starks and they don't like the Boltons. And so maybe Sansa will have a chance at some point to do something to um, to harm uh, these people, including the guy who who killed her brother. It's a great way to make you think that she'll do that. But given Sansa's history in terms of just being passive, you know, having yeah, very passive, having no agency, uh, I don't think she will. But it's a great way to make her think she could. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I did find myself wondering if she got her own room back. I kind of think she did. I hope she did. She's had a really rough time, and she deserves some comforts. Yeah. If it no, didn't get burned down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of characters aging, that wasn't the same uh, maid from the first season, was it? She died. Right or yeah, no. I think the, I think that maid died. But this was I think I think we're meant to get the impression that maybe she's somebody who was on the staff or worked somewhere around Winterfell, so she knows her and mm. and and you know obviously is a, a northerner and and by saying that the North remembers, that's very much like not in the in the camp of the of the Boltons and the Bol- the Boltons here are really this is a little bit like um, when you guys were saying last week about how. Um, the small council meeting where where Cersei's like, all right, I'm in charge now. It was kind of just a bold power move. Like, okay, are you going to say no to me? I feel like this is <laughs> this is essentially what the Boltons are doing, right? Which is we're just going to go to Winterfell and say we're in charge. 
Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and we're in charge, and the North is all going to, they're going to give all their stuff to us. And, you know, th- this episode makes clear, easier said than done, that there's going to be trouble in the North, because the North does not really appreciate being ruled by uh, people who aren't the Starks, essentially. Yeah, people in Westeros tend to put a lot of stock in things, like, he holds the Iron Throne, I hold the Eyrie, and they just assume that means they rule the area around the Eyrie. I can't remember whether that's metonymy or synecdoche. So I'm going to say them both and try to impress someone. But the north, from what I can see of the map, is a really big place. And even if you hold Winterfell, surely that doesn't mean everybody's going to just give you tribute. No matter how crazy. Yeah, the way I see it, the um, holding the North or holding Winterfell means that you have the hearts and minds of the people around it. You may actually hold, you know, the area of Winterfell, but people are still saying the North remembers. And I'm hoping that at some point that disconnect between people, you know, being ruled by someone and who the people actually love and who they swear fealty to, that comes to a head at some point. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that the reason that uh that the the revolution that robert's revolution happened was because the mad king uh, targaryen had uh made uh, had lost a- any support that he had not only among the noble people but anybody and that that robert uh was seen as being a ca- kind of uh, saving the kingdom and that gave him some legitimacy and the north yeah you the north always has has been that's when we're when rob said he was the king in the north i mean the whole idea here is you get the sense that the north has never been comfortably ruled by by king's landing and that Mm. the only way the north stays in line to a unified throne is if the lord of winterfell says yes i i accept that that person is my king but that even then the people there really are doing it all because they trust the Starks and not because of any fealty to to King's Landing. And, you know, this is a good I mean, I feel like we got that in the first season. And t- this episode was a good reminder, I felt like, of that same thing, which is like they are, un- they're, they're, you know, they're there's unrest in the north they don't trust they love they loved rob and now the guy who killed rob who actually like did the killing of rob Mm -hmm. has put himself in 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 the position to be their ruler yeah right yeah it (laughs) it seems like historically westeros was much more seven separate kingdoms and they weren't always unified yes oh yeah yeah and without a strong central ruler they're unlikely to stay, you know, like, as far as we know, the Iron Islands have already split off from everyone else. Right. Mm. Right, exactly. <laughs> and Going back to the you said, Jason. Going back to everything you said, Jason, uh, that's exactly why the Starks were such a big target uh, for the first season of the show. That's why they brought them so close to King's Landing. Uh, you know, keep your friends close and enemies closer. Uh, they brought them uh, there to be taken down. <laughs> Uh, that per- the person who said that doesn't have many enemies. Sorry, that's a later scene. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's a later scene. But that made me laugh out loud. Godfather in Westeros. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I did like Littlefinger essentially saying to Sansa, "Stop being a bystander." Which you know, start playing the game is what he's saying now. Whether Sansa could ever play the game is unclear. But I like that he's he's almost, and I think this is. I think he is not probably not entirely lying to her because i feel like uh she is sort of his weakness in that she's catelyn's daughter and reminds him of her um and so i think that he's not entirely uh deceitful when he says that to her i mean he's deceitful because it's Littlefinger, but not mm. maybe a little less than usual 
Um, and then Sansa, Sansa, I should say, you know, as we've said, she goes back to Winterfell and she talks to the the lady who says the North remembers, and she meets her uh, new buddy Ramsay Bolton. He seems nice. <laughs> uh, I, I feel that Ramsay's playing it a little bit broad. Yeah. Which, which contrasts with Roos, who's playing it, underplaying it so much, he might as well not even be on screen. I, I don't know. I actually really like the scene between Roos Bolton and Littlefinger. And I thought, I like this actor because he comes across as um, really smart and he knows what he needs to do. And he will literally do anything. Like, he's completely, he's amoral, but really careful and and smart about it and and that's an interesting contrast to Littlefinger who is also really smart and amoral but is more like obsequious and shifty where uh, Roos is like grim and serious all the time well for me Roos is so grim and serious that he's doing exactly the same thing as Stannis is doing uh, except even less interestingly hmm Interesting. Stannis is more interesting just because he has, you know, the connections to the Baratheons and the uh, fire priestess there with him. But, you know, they, you're right. They are doing the same thing. They're trying to they're, they're going for Winterfell or sorry, they're going for uh, King's Landing's jugular. Well, I don't mean what the characters are. Doing. I mean, what the actors are doing. Huh. Oh, mm, they're <laughs> very they're very taciturn. They're not giving me much is what I'm saying. That's interesting. Well, well, I, I in this episode, I really liked the. I really liked the Roose Bolton stuff with right. with Littlefinger. I I thought I thought that was uh, I I actually sat up and took notice that I thought that that actor was doing something kind of interesting with the I I just I got a sense and the interplay with Littlefinger is part of it too. But I got the sense like um, I don't like this guy, but I can kind of respect him that he's got a plan. And I also it's like the contrast with his son, <laughs> who <laughs> is is a weasel, right? And he and and he's gonna he's gonna regret making him his heir. He's he's gonna regret it. He's just he's going to regret it. That was a major mistake. But I feel like you know he was stuck. He had to pick an heir. And Ramsey, you know, does stuff, yeah. but is a monster, and uh, he's going to regret it. I don't oh, know. Definitely. The, the things Ramsey does are so over the top and horrific. I feel like the actors. The actor could pull it back a notch or two. Yeah. At this point, he's overplaying it so much, he might as well have the word dangerous tattooed on his <laughs> forehead, <laughs> which yeah. would be crazy. Who yeah. would do that? No one, no <laughs> one would do that. That's nuts. Yeah. Um, what I really liked yep. in that scene uh, between Littlefinger and uh, Bolton was uh, little bits where the show kind of pulls back and we see the landscape of everything because everyone's talking about everyone else uh, in most of their scenes. And the one line that stood out to me was the last time that uh, the Vale and Winterfell teamed up, they brought down the greatest dynasty that this land has ever known or something like that. And I thought, wait. That did that one line just set up the arc for the rest of this season until something goes horribly wrong. But mm. I love little moments like that where we get a glimpse into the bigger picture of the entire show and the entire fate of the country. Yep, yep. I, I like little hints that I mean, again, this is the plan that he's saying is the plan in yeah. this conversation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, like I am convinced that is what Littlefinger has sold Roos Bolton on. I'm sure yes. he's got three or four other levels of thing going on. Yeah, this may all be a switcheroo, you know, because depending on whether he was telling the truth to some, in some degree to Sansa, he may have a, you know, switcheroo thing planned here to get even more, um, you know, even more territory for himself. Who knows? Mm -hmm. It's a little finger. He's got ten balls in the air at once, I think. Um, I wanted to mention... Uh, 
the, the we have a nice uh, uh, transition with Podrick and Brienne watching Littlefinger and and Sansa go. Or uh, they're at Moat Kylan and they're they're headed off to Winterfell, and we get the origin stories of Pod and Brienne here, which I which I really enjoyed. I enjoyed. Um, Brienne explaining why she loved Renly so much with her embarrassment at, at the dance and uh, and Pod kind of puncturing it by saying, well, you know, he was She's like, yes, I know. <laughs> we, everybody knows. Thank you. We all know. It's yeah. Fine. But I, I enjoyed this... that. I like Br- Brienne's moment of, uh, you know, sort of like remembering a terrible thing from her childhood. And I, I thought that said something about sort of who she is and why she's so down on herself and all of that. It reminded me of uh, Tyrion's story in season two, uh, where Jamie hired him a hooker to, uh, you know, fall in love for the first yeah. time. Uh, yeah, uh, Tyrion's a really good comparison here for me because Brienne's story is about how then I realized I was the most ugly person in the world, and well, you're not ugly. You look great, and we keep being told how ugly Tyrion is, and also Peter Dinklage is a handsome dude. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure whether the characters really are ugly and we just couldn't find television people that are that ugly <laughs> or, the, or we're supposed to be thinking, Oh, poor Brienne. You don't know how beautiful you are. I think, I think Brienne is not, is not attractive in the way that ladies are supposed to be attractive. Right. And, and she, she's a little more severe and obviously she's big and strong and fights and stuff. And yeah. so she doesn't fulfill what the people who are like trying to marry her dad, her dad's trying to marry her off to somebody in, in nobility. And this is not what they're looking for. Although again, they, they marry people off to whoever who haven't even seen each other. But you know, I, I, I get why she would feel that as an awkward, you know, as an awkward girl who's really tall and and uh, and not conventionally attractive, because she's awesome. But she she also doesn't feel like she's awesome, and that's I think I think Pod. See, this is why Pod is a good squire. He's like squire to the the, the low self esteem. <laughs> that's what he does. That's why he's proud to be their squires. Is he? Because yeah. because his pride is itself affirmation for them. I suppose it's my fault for knowing who Gwendolyn Christie is. Cause I happen to know that if Brienne were to grow her hair out, mm. she could be a professional model. Interesting. Interesting. Account th- of she is. <laughs> yeah. Interesting yeah. theory there. I mean, in 2015, you know, in our world, we can look in and say, no, I mean, Brienne, you are attractive, like objectively, but in that world, she is not what their, you know, ideal of uh, attractive woman is. So yeah, she's yeah. there and we're, uh, you know, watching her. And, you know, we can see this as audience members and people who knew, know her, you know, modeling career outside the show. But, you know, for them, mm-hmm. she's just a weird woman. Well, she's just a weird woman, but she's also canonically one of the four or five best fighters in the world. Yes. So at some point, people probably stopped talking smack to her face if they knew who she was. Right. I like the pod, you know, pod gives her that and she yeah. accepts she accepts the compliment, which is actually kind of nice. I enjoy having Pod around. Yeah, he's great. He uh she needs Podrick around her. Mhm. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying last week about, you know, the show pairing people off uh and saying them on weird fun adventures. I'm not <laughs> a fan of this subplot uh only because uh this scene in this episode was a very good like well-written thing but in the context of everything else it felt weird to say oh why don't we all sit down and listen to everyone's origin <laughs> stories <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, I enjoy. I enjoyed the scenes. You're right. It it is sort of like, you know, what a, what a, we got some pod and and Brienne time. Let's uh, let's give them some time to to chat about it. Just uh, to remind us that they're there. Yeah, yeah, and to explain why Pod, how he got where he where he went, and all of that. And again, I enjoy, I enjoyed it, and I kind of enjoy that there are at least some moments that are about character that are not just grinding the plot forward. Um, even though, yeah, you can get enough sense that the pace is just you know driving the plot forward is all we have time for, and all that. And this felt like a forced like little bit of a break to give us a better sense of 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 their background and. And why? Why I, I do feel like she keeps on having to justify why she cares at all about or cared at all about Renly. It's like, mm. come on, she liked him, okay? <laughs> Just give her a break. It, I've always thought that she was largely driven by just all she wants to do is swear fealty to someone, have a place to belong, and vow vengeance on people, and then follow through on those vows. She just needs to be a knight, right? Yeah. But she should won't. be. They'll never let her, but she should exactly. be. Exactly. Then she'd be happy. Maybe if Cersei were queen, she could change mm. some of the rules about who gets to be knights. Uh, <laughs> you and your Queen Cersei campaign again. Mm. Uh, going back to, yeah. uh, you know, pacing and character development, the fact that they, you know, axed Bran's entire storyline from this season, they, the fact that we don't <laughs> see Daenerys at all this episode, and the, the fact that they <laughs> placed a little character moment like this above those two things makes me question, like, their motives. Again, I like this scene, but in terms of getting the plot forward, maybe that would have been a better choice to have in this episode rather than have Brienne and Pod do a big, long soliloquy. Yeah, I mean, obviously they 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 plot out and script the entire season, so they know exactly how much story they've got to get through. And I I expect that some of these scenes are because they've got uh, they've got the they know they've got the space, <laughs> and they want to pick some characters and give them some of that time. But you're right. I mean that that clearly is what the what what's happening here. Yeah, exactly. Is they don't have enough Daenerys story and you know they're not going to show her this week and that's just how it's going to be and bran i think yeah i I think there's not enough for bran to do (laughs) so they're like let's just put him on ice and we'll bring him back later (laughs) because there's nothing he's oh he's far in the north so he literally probably is on ice (laughs) um so so at the wall speaking of ice Actually, Ooh, nice. nice transition there. Look, it's like Game ice of transition. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Stannis and John. Uh, Stannis says again, so you're right. I can make you a Stark, uh, which is a nice uh, follow on from, of course, the story of, of Ramsay being made uh, a Bolton. Uh, but John says, "No, I'm the Lord Commander of the Nice Night's Watch. This is my job, and I'm gonna I'm gonna stay out of the fight because that's that's what we do." Um, and he gives him the advice to get rid of um, of Alistair, Sir Alistair, because he's a snake. Um, and and that's when we get that line of, I thought it was best to keep your enemies close. And, and, and Stannis says, that person didn't have many enemies. <laughs> yeah. And I think John does a good job of understanding who his enemies actually are. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alistair Thorne is a jerk, but he's a jerk with the right thought like he wants to defend the wall mm. Yano slint is a weasel and has always been a weasel yes mm. he was a weasel in king's landing he's a weasel at the wall he is <laughs> yes. always a weasel we got onion night stuff we finally got some good onion night stuff this week Yay. I 
No, you're right. He has enemies, but he has them on different fronts. He has enemies at the wall and then in this new world that uh, Stannis is trying to bring him back into to bring him back uh, south. He has enemies there, too. And, you know, he has to choose his battles when uh, I thought it was really anticlimactic when he said uh, that, yeah, I'm choosing Night's Watch. I was like, oh. I was really expecting a season-long arc of you struggling to go back and forth about staying on the Night's Watch or going back down south with Stannis. Turns out it's more complicated than that, thank God. Well, I think the window closed for that decision. He might have considered going back on his oath, but once you're the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, you're locked in. Yeah. Like, I, if you turn back, turn your back at that point, you can't expect any of the other people to tr- to stick around and defend the wall. Exactly. Right. I almost expected him to say, um, you know, I, I thought John's response to Stannis was respectful and I like that, but I almost expected him to say, do you know what we've seen here? <laughs> do you realize why the Wildings are here? There is crazy stuff coming. <laughs> and if we aren't here to defend it, everybody's going to die. So yeah. shut up. <laughs> you know, right. I, I kind of wanted him to say that. Like, look, you think you think you need me in Winterfell? Somebody's got to be here, or we're all completely screwed. And and, yeah. and he didn't say that, but you know that that was what I was thinking. Is like you know he knows what the, how important his job is, and yeah. and 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 the reason that they're sworn out of the affairs of all these different kings and all that. This is why. This is like ex- for a thousand years. It's like yeah, we we're we're independent. We're 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 above all of that. It's because the White Walkers are going to come, and somebody's got to be paying attention. It's like now is that time. So John needs to be really focused here i do like that uh that the onion knight makes his pitch right like well you know you're guarding the realms of men and the boltons are bad men (laughs) so i'm like yeah Yeah. good nice try (laughs) in a very onion nighty way i thought that was a wonderful scene to finally get some of his great dialogue back in yeah um But, but i think john's basic philosophy at this point is None of that other stuff matters. And I'm not sure he's wrong. But from a meta standpoint, I'm not sure it helps to have a character accurately tell the audience all the other plots on this show don't matter. Like, yeah. I'm sitting here thinking, you know, Jon Snow's right. Maybe I don't care who becomes king. <laughs> Well, the way that I've always watched the show is that in your back pocket, you need to keep uh, the fact that there's White Walkers in the north. There's dragons in the west or east. There's all this other stuff that can just ruin the end game. It doesn't matter who's on the throne in the end if White Walkers are just mm. killing everybody. And I really like having that threat like on top of everything. It's like layers upon layers upon layers of stress for everyone involved. And we get to see how all that works out. Some people don't give a crap about the North and the White Walkers. Some people, that's what they do. That's literally all that they can do after they swear into the Night's Watch. So that's something that I really love about the show. Those like end games that really nullify everything else if they choose to you know, move forward. Well, and it's the first thing that we see, right? We first thing we see is weird stuff happening north of the wall, and I feel like, you know, I, I yeah, is it invalidating it? I, I I guess I would say I feel like the the overarching story really is who's going to be left standing at the moment when everybody realizes that there is a truly existential threat to humanity coming from the north. 
who's left? Like, it's like a game of musical chairs. People are going to get knocked off the stage. They're going to be squabbling. They're going to be trying to take over. And then at some point, everybody is going to have to come together under whose banner is that going to be uh, as winter falls on Westeros to stop this threat from the north and 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 you know everything else is like watching the people walking around the chairs waiting for the music to stop game of musical chairs was the working title (laughs) game of thrones is the game is musical chairs (laughs) it's a cakewalk basically is what i'm saying that's the game um that doesn't sound safe this isn't a chair you want to be like lunging into no that's true that's true the iron throne you got to really want it is what I'm because saying. it's literally made of swords too. <laughs> so, um, so Jon Snow, in his first big act as uh, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, appoints a latrine captain. <laughs> That's a good, good, uh, good job. Somebody's got to be in charge of the latrines, building the latrines, digging out yeah. the latrines. Uh, Sir Alistair is named First Ranger. So there's that moment of like, I'm going to. Uh, you got a lot of votes in this election, almost as many as me, one short of me. Um, so I'm going to give you a little bit of – I thought that was a nice bit of leadership. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a, a promotion, um, and also your job is going to mean that you're not around very much, yeah. which is good <laughs> politics, I think. And, and Sir Alistair isn't fooled by that for a second. No. Nope. But he also uh, – all right, that's what I should have. Fine. Yeah, so it's, you know, yeah, he knows what the political calculus is, but also it's a, it's like a face saving. He's like, I honor you. I, you know, you, you have all these great skills and I'm, you know, and, and you should be in charge of the, of, of, of ranging around and seeing what's going on. And, you know, I thought, I thought that was really good. Lord Janos, uh, I'm going to give you a wrecked castle. So fix that up. Oh, call, I want a wrecked castle so bad. Call Bob Vila. <laughs> Uh, and uh, fix it up, and he re- he refuses because uh, he's a jerk. He's a big jerk face, and uh, in a nice moment, uh, Sir Alistair and all of the other people in that the cool kids group over there kind of uh, don't really rush to Lord Janos's defense. In fact, Sir Alistair makes a point of standing up and then stepping aside. Yep, like I'm. You're on your own, pal. Yeah. Yeah. Even up in the north, there's uh, those like displays of power and intention in that physical realm that I would expect more of in King's Landing. But mm. no, these people are still uh, they're still making these big, grand things of uh, power with you know gestures and very traditional methods like that. I mean, you just the guy, the guy. It's his he, It's his first day, and he's given you a direct order in front of the entire company, <laughs> and you you tell you you don't just refuse it, but you tell him off. What 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 recourse is left? I well, suppose you could put him in uh, in in the stocks or something, or you could chop his head off like Dad used to do. <laughs> Going back to I think the first scene of the entire series, a second scene, right? Second scene, right? Yeah. We mm-hmm. get the White Walkers, and then we get Ned chopping off a deserter's head. So uh, Janos uh, begs for mercy at the end. Uh, says, I'll do whatever you want. And John uh, steps back as if to consider his request and chops his head off. And then gets a nod of approval from From Stannis, Stannis up on the wall. <laughs> yep. Appreciative of the fact that his head is still on his neck, using mm. it to nod. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. Did you have any doubt that uh, that John wouldn't cut off his head? 
I don't know. I, I thought that it could go either way. I thought that this is an interesting moment for John to decide whether he's going to show mercy and put the guy in a cell or something like that, or even let him do whatever he wants to do. But also at the same time, it's sort of like I came this far. I put him out here uh, on a on a wood block. I've got my sword out. Probably the time for mercy has passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If if that hadn't been Yano Slint, I think you might have considered it. <laughs> but. No, he, he sort of maneuvered him into a pl- – it was the perfect place, right? Because he's like, none of his buddies are going to defend him after yeah. after he, he went all in on, you know, you can you can, you can can stick it up your ass. I'm not taking that job. And it's like, all right. I said, okay. Now I got you right where I want you, which is with your head on the chopping block. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like the first day in prison. Well, you get those moments that are like, oh, he's going to regret that. And then you get moments like this, which is he's not going to regret that. Yeah. <laughs> That guy was awful. He was awful when he was at, at King's Landing. He got promoted for no good reason, and uh, he's he's the guy who got promoted when uh, Baristan like walked out in 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 a huff, right? Yeah. Wasn't that Janos Slint got promoted to be in the King's Guard, and uh, and Baristan was forcibly re- retired and fled to go visit uh, Daenerys. Threw off all of his armor. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, we have one more uh, location, which is the last scenes of this episode are uh, Tyrion and Varys, and uh, they're in, is this Volantis where they are? I, I assume it, I think it is, because they said that's where they were going, and they can't be in Marine yet, so it must be Volantis. Road to Volantis, or the suburbs of Volantis, or actually Volantis. And Tyrion oh, is... Oh, I, I wish this were called Road to Volantis. <laughs> <laughs> I have to get out of this wheelhouse. I have to get out of this wheelhouse. I have to get out of this wheelhouse. Or, uh, what's the other great line? I need to, I need to speak with someone who has hair. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I like... Uh, when Tyrion said he needed to see someone else's face, Varys <laughs> sounded a little hurt. But he yeah. said, "It's a perfectly good face." Oh, <laughs> but that—that that was uh, again to your buddy comedy theory, Monty. Yes, <laughs> this is a good again some good Tyrion and Varys. Those two characters are good together. Varys just wants to wants to um, you know he's got a plan. He's executing his plan. Tyrion is going along with the plan, but not entirely like super behind it and so you see it here where he's like i'm just gonna walk around i just i don't care anymore i gotta get out of here i gotta walk around um and they watch a red priestess who who uh who says lots of things uh the night is dark and full of horrors and talks about Mm. the red god and what the red god is going to do and it's you know it's a familiar because melisander has done some of the same sorts of things Uh, because i don't remember the uh, dragon queen being that big a part of that's a new one, isn't it? Not for Melisandre, yeah. no. Uh, also, I was excited to see her because that actress is on Arrow this season. Ah, interesting. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah, she plays Tatsu Yamashiro. Wow. <laughs> okay. The wife in the flashbacks. Oh. All right. I'm. I'm. I haven't seen this season of Arrow, so I will look for that when I finally watch it. Um. Anyway. I, anyway, the Red Priest just sees Tyrion as she's talking, and and. He he smartly is like, okay, let's find a brothel. Let's get yeah. out of here. <laughs> yes, it turns out Tyrion is the most recognizable person in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's like, oh, I'll put up my hood. I'll just be like any other drunk dwarf. Turns out oh. there's only one other drunk dwarf, and it's him. Yeah. 
a drunk dwarf who goes around saying hilarious things to people. <laughs> hilarious things to bouncers, specifically. Mm-hmm. That's, That's what rare. That's his material. That's what he does. <laughs> What I loved about the scene in the brothel, it felt like a scene out of a movie where they just kind of set it up and it's not necessarily driving the plot forward, but you know the end game for them. Uh, you know that they want to figure things out about, uh, you know, Daenerys and they want to, you know, get over to Marine. But, you know, they're just going to hang out in the brothel and things from their quest kind of seep in and they're talking to a prostitute about, um, you know, the Dragon Queen and they're talking to other people about something else. And like Tyrion's little quips move – they don't necessarily move the plot forward, but they're fun and they serve a purpose, which is something that, you know, you mentioned last week or the week before. His scenes have been lacking. It's just kind of them scheming and talking. Last week's especially. It's just I need to get out of this – this box. I need to get out of this box. Mm. And this episode, you know, they're still having fun. You can still get wonderful Tyrion stuff, but it's got a purpose, and it's not a direct purpose until the very end. Well, I thought the really cool thing was we got to see we're told a lot that the people care about the Starks or the people care about the Targaryens. This was a chance to see what the people actually think about Daenerys and what they think is that she's a pretty good theme for a prostitute. <laughs> the uh, Daenerys theme prostitute mm-hmm. gets the most business. Who the funk? Well, that's a good sign for Daenerys. She, I think she's in. Well, I mean, right? She's in. She's in sermons from priestesses, and yeah. she's in uh, in brothels. So she's she gets around. She's she's popular. A broad cross section of popularity for Daenerys. Um, also, also one of the things that this does is it it, it gets us to uh, notice that Tyrion has lost his taste for whoring. Uh, which I think is obviously w- without having to even draw the parallels in the episode further than they already did. He he does end up talking to the dark-haired prostitute, and this is, of course, hearkening back to him killing his <laughs> girlfriend last season. And uh, and uh, he, he seems quite upset with himself about the fact that he's lost the taste for it and says at one point, I can't do this. What am I going to do with all my spare time? <laughs> oh, it's great. <laughs> It would have been nice if the reason he lost his taste for prostitutes was the scene immediately before where we saw slaves being made into prostitutes. Yeah, but no. 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 That never bothered him before. Or maybe it did. I don't know. But uh, If it did, he never certainly showed it. But whatever it is, he has lost his taste. I assume it has to do with the fact that his, uh, his girl, he killed his girlfriend and all. Uh, but uh, – but yes, that I, I do think they also this is the suggestion that Tyrion is becoming a reluctant hero, which is a lot of fun that yeah. he's like, all right, all these stupid things that I used to do, I can't do anymore. So I guess I'll go, you know, to visit, uh, you know, Marine and and meet Daenerys and all of that. And and he's really going to go meet Daenerys because Jorah Marmot is handing, hanging out in the brothel and he puts a rope around him and says, I'm going to take you to the queen. So which queen is he taking taking him to? Oh, I assume it's Daenerys. I assume he's trying to get back into her good graces by bringing bringing her a Lannister. Yeah. Could be, but I felt like he could just as well have realized that Cersei probably wants him back. Ah. Well, where do his allegiances lie? Like, he's spent so much time with uh, Daenerys that he wants to get back in her good graces. I was pondering this earlier. It was like, why would he well, care enough to harm Tyrion? And he did, he did get, he was spying on Daenerys, right? And did have that deal where he was going to be able to have his name cleared or something back in Westeros. That is, 
that is another way to read it. I just assume he's so um, just puppy-eyed, love loving of Daenerys that he'll do anything to get back in her good graces. But you're mm-hmm. right. Maybe not. Maybe it's maybe it's Cersei. Yeah. <laughs> of course, he was working for Varys back then. So you would think if that was his plan, he would have seen Varys right there and said, oh, my old boss. Well, maybe maybe that's scene one next week. <laughs> yeah, who knows? <laughs> what, you're, you're, you're with him? Wah, wah, wah. And then yes. the three amigos move through <laughs> through Essos or wherever they are now. Volantis. Anything uh, anything else to talk about about this episode? We've we, we've really done it good in true incomparable network fashion. We have talked about it longer than it actually uh, <laughs> mm, ran. Very true. <laughs> but there was a lot of a lot of good stuff in here, and I really enjoyed the uh, the transitions and uh, a lot of the individual scenes. And I just I felt really good about it. I I, yes. I really liked this one. Um, yet again, they have ruined the fun of trying to guess what the title means. Yes, the yes. the High Sparrow is uh, is that guy. Yeah, that guy called the High Sparrow. Although I think there. we nailed it with the idea that the uh, that uh, religion is is a, maybe the theme that ties yeah. most of this episode together, which is really mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, uh, this episode had quite a few of those like jaw dropping Game of Thrones moments, especially the ends. Like, oh no, Tyrion is all bound, and he has somewhere new to go that is not of his mm. own volition. So that was one of those like big jaw on the floor Game of Thrones moments that I live for. Like that's why I watched the show. Maybe he'll get uh, put back in a box. Oh, if he did, you <laughs> um, would never hear the end of it. The development I'm most looking forward to is seeing how Sansa goes forward because we've already seen her dealing with being engaged to a psychopath that she can't escape. Yeah. How has she learned from that? She already knows all the, everything about courtly matters, but I want to see how she negotiates this situation. I also really enjoyed them saying, well, Marjorie loves Sansa. They did seem to get along, but I don't know that that's going to help. Right. Well, we will see. It's all, all all to come. We're only three episodes in. Seven more to go. Oh, man. That's that's a really great feeling to have. It's like waking up at three in the morning and realizing, oh, you still have another six hours before you need to wake up. Here we are this far <laughs> into plots, and we still have seven more to go. Yeah. And speaking of which, Brian, it's very late where you are. We should probably wrap this up now. So <laughs> uh, we'll be back next week. Some collection of us will be back next week to talk about Game of Thrones. Um, maybe even in person uh, mm. just a, just a teaser, but not in that case it won't be Monty. But you know, we'll we'll we're all gonna we, you'll be hearing from all of us throughout this. <laughs> we'll put it that way. So, uh, Monty, thanks for being on. Thank you. And Brian, thank you. Anytime. Well, and, Sunday, but anytime. <laughs> any Sunday will do. And thanks everybody out there for listening to our uh, review of Game of Thrones. Oh, I Sparrow. What does it mean? We'll uh, see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>